Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen. Church, you can be seated. Team, thank you for leading us in expression of the heart of God. We are going to be singing songs like that in ways like that, I think, for a long, long time when we get to heaven. So awesome to be part of a worship service in that way. Again, welcome uh, to Horizon West Church. Um, I want to let you know, I meant to say this when we were baptizing, but just, just so that you know, we do have another opportunity coming on October the 1st. And so if you are wrestling with or God's stirring in your heart for baptism, please let us know about that. Um, You can reach out to any one of us, let somebody in the lobby know after the service. That's one of the things we delight in the most is seeing somebody tangibly get into the water as an expression of what God is doing in their heart and bringing them to new life. And so I want to make sure you know October 1st to circle that date and let us know that you're interested. Well, this Thursday I had uh, an eye exam this past Thursday. And I noticed something, the reason I scheduled the appointment was that something had changed in that when I put my glasses on, it felt like I had not put my glasses on. Uh, Things that I was able to see before were were dimmer and not as clear. And so I went and uh, the doctor put the eye chart up. He'd never done this before. He said, leave your glasses on. I said, okay. He said, what are these five letters? I said, J-L-P-Q-R. And he said, no, those were, none of those letters were right. So, and that was with my glasses on. He said, take the glasses off. He put the thing, you know, that he swabs down and you put your eyes in. And I was like, oh, that's like T-J-F-R-C. You know, it's like a whole different thing. And he said, listen, so I've done the exam, uh, the, you know, looking at the eye, the shape of the eye is all good. You don't have any diseases on the eye. Uh, this is just a natural part of aging. So I'm looking for a new eye doctor, if you know of anyone that, uh, that you would recommend. I was like, that's not encouraging, actually. I'm not old enough to be aging, but apparently I am. And uh, to make matters worse, I went out to the little area, you know, and he, the guy's like, okay, we got the prescription from the doctor, and it looks like you need bifocals. <laughs> now, I'm not hating on anybody that wears bifocals, but I was like, really? And, like, and now there's like technology where you can't even tell somebody's wearing bifocals, you know, it's like all way better. Uh, but I, I turned it down, not out of vanity, but it was like $80 more expensive. I'm like, listen, I can still read a book up close. I don't need bifocals yet, but give me about a year and I'll be there. I, I come home and uh, because like, how did the exam go? I said, great, I'm getting new glasses. And she said, what did you pick out? And I said, two words, red and round. And y'all, I wish you could have, I was kidding, but I wish you could have seen her face. She was like, what? The truth is I tried on like 30 different frames and then basically got exactly what I'm wearing right now. I don't know if any of you are like that. Like, I'm going to be bold today. No, I'm not. I'm going to get what I always get. So that was my experience. But I tell you that to say this, when it comes to the lens through which we look as Christians, we we need bifocals. (laughs) We need to be able to at the same time see two different visions. And those two lenses that we need, those corrective apparatus that we need to be wearing at all times, is one so that we can see the holiness of God, 
and two, so that we can see God's incredible love for people. Now, by way of quick uh, kind of bringing us all onto the same page, you need to know that the Bible is broken into two basic parts, Old Testament or Old Covenant, New Testament or New Covenant. And the Old Testament is primarily telling the story of the people of Israel who were chosen by God as a picture of his redemptive heart, and that's the time before Jesus. The New Testament, right out of the gate, introduces us to the person of Jesus, and he introduces us to the gospel. Now, in both Old Testament and New Testament, we see the love of God for people. Sometimes we, we get a, a skewed understanding of these things, and we go, oh, Old Testament was all judgment and wrath, and then New Testament we get grace. All through the Bible, we see the redemptive heart of God. In fact, one of the most repeated refrains in the Old Testament before Jesus was this, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. So they understood that. But if you were to put on a scale the, the stories, the verses, the, the prophecies that point to the holiness of God versus the love of God for people, you would probably find that, that the emphasis is more on God's holiness. And so the people of God get these 613 laws that they are to abide by with corresponding punishments if they don't. There, there were two uh, things that embodied this idea of God's holiness. One was called the Ark of the Covenant. One was called the Holy of Holies. And if you entered into or touched either one without the proper credentials, you fell down dead. There is, uh, again and again, we see this refrain of God is holy. And what the Hebrew people learned about God was that a healthy distance must be kept. Why? Because God is holy. Well, as the, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, are navigating their understanding of who God is, we see God, you know, walking them through the wilderness. We see him ministering to David both in a pasture and a palace. The people are learning about the holiness of God. And what emerged over the course of the latter part of the Old Testament was a group of what I might call a spiritual special forces, a, a group of well-educated law-abiding men who saw it as their job to keep everybody in line with God's holiness. That group of individuals was called Pharisees. And interestingly, it is the group of people who had the most conflict with Jesus when he shows up. Now, I, I tell all of you this for a very specific reason. And the reason is this, as we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in the New Testament, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, you need to understand that Paul, before he encountered Jesus, was a Pharisee. And so what we see in, in this road to Damascus experience is a change in the lens, or maybe an addition in the lens, through which Paul would have understood who God is. The name Yahweh is the name by which Jewish or Hebrew people understand this one God who introduced himself to Abraham and then to Moses. The name Yahweh embodies that, the I am, and it's such a sacred name that the Pharisees and some other Orthodox Jews will not even say or write the name Yahweh. It's considered too holy. Can't, can't touch that, can't go there, can't, you know, desecrate the name by putting it into ink or on my tongue. 
the, the name Jesus is the name Yeshua. And so what Paul understood was that this God, Yahweh, was the holy God of the people of Israel, but this teacher that is called Yeshua, or Jesus, is a radical rebel who's undermining the holiness of God and raising up people to say things like, it is not by works that you're saved, but by the grace of God. Paul thought that was heresy. Paul thought that did injury to the vision or the lens of God's holiness. In fact, he was so committed to Yahweh God that he traveled to a place called Damascus to persecute this rebel group of people called Christians. And some of you know that on this road to Damascus, Paul, who at that time was still called by his Hebrew name of Saul, sees a light from heaven and hears a voice surrounding him. Interestingly, it says the people traveling with him saw the light but didn't hear the voice. And the reason is that the voice was for him. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this Pharisee, Saul, with more education and understanding about the Bible than almost anyone on planet earth at the time, remarkably asks the question, who are you, Lord? Which means that you can compile a whole lot of facts and information about something and yet have no real experience with it. This voice from heaven, God, answers Paul with these words, I am Jesus. Now stay with me because this is going to unlock something for some of you. We know from Acts chapter 26 that Paul recounts the story of his conversion. By the way, one of the things that's the most fun to do as a follower of Jesus is when people give you the opportunity to tell them how that came to be. What was it in your life? What was it in your circumstances? Were you raised in the church or did you find Jesus later? Or as many of us say, yes, (laughs) raised in the church and found Jesus later. And that experience is life-changing. And Paul, on at least two occasions in the book of Acts, recounts for people the story of what happened on that road to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 26, he tells the people that he's talking to, a voice came from heaven and said to me in Hebrew, you go, wow, that's an interesting detail to include. Why does it matter the language that this voice from heaven, this voice of God came to? And here's why. When Paul says that the voice came from heaven in Hebrew, it means that what Paul heard in response to the question, who are you, Lord? Lord, He heard Yahweh Yeshua. I am Jesus. And in that moment, everything in Paul's life changed. Everything in the lens through which he understood God was shattered. Because in that moment, he realized that the holiness of Yahweh God had been married to the loving grace and compassion of this one named Jesus. And so Paul set out on a mission to extend the gospel to as far and as many people as he possibly could. Now the Pharisees in Jesus' day and continuing in Paul's, they had no question that Jesus loved people. That, that, that was never a, a, a question mark for them. They saw him touch people with diseases. They saw him have dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors. The love of Jesus that, that was embodied by him, that was never in question. What they did question was, is this new teacher that's called Yeshua holy? 
Because in their mind, you can't reconcile a holy God with eating with people who are sinners. And the Pharisees gave Jesus a nickname that I think he probably wore with pride, friend of sinners. He said, man, a friend of sinners can't possibly also be holy. And the point of all of this, as we get ready to turn to 1 Corinthians, is that Paul's growth in following Jesus, what, what Paul was being discipled into and, and more fully learning, was much less about the holiness of God. He understood that. Growth as a follower of Jesus for Paul was primarily in that of looking through the lens of God's love for people. Paul needed to grow in his understanding that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever believes, not those who are circumcised, not those who are ethnically Israelite, not those who who commit all the sacrifices and rituals, but that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Just like the Bible is broken up into these two parts called Old and New Testament, you could break up the letter of 1 Corinthians, where we'll turn in a moment, into two parts. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, what we see Paul doing is hammering away on holiness issues. He's essentially saying to the Corinthians, the gospel should change the way that you live. Because of the gospel, you shouldn't be arguing with the family of believers about who is the greatest among you. Because you're followers of Jesus, you shouldn't be boasting about who has the most worldly wisdom. And as Christians, you certainly shouldn't be committing gross uh, sexual sin. All of these things are holiness issues. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 7. But when we come to chapter 8, which we did last week, Paul both literally and figuratively turns the page. And he's going to create the second lens, the bifocal view. As much as the holiness part matters, he's going to begin to talk about love of God issues, both for those outside of the church and for those within. And if you were here last week or you watched or listened to the message afterward, you know that Paul uses as exhibit, eight, uh, exhibit A the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Now again, every new follower of Jesus was going, this is a big deal. You can't be a follower of Jesus and eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. And Paul in a way that really kind of blows the mind, says, actually, because idols don't exist, all you're eating is food, so don't make an issue out of it. But in doing so, Paul has opened himself, himself up to criticism. Paul has opened himself to the charge that he's not really about the right things. He's making too many compromises. Maybe Paul heard things like I have heard at different times in my ministry, like you're sacrificing the purity of the gospel. Or Paul, you're being influenced by culture. Or maybe even, Paul, you're watering down the call to holiness. And so when we get into chapter 9, which we're doing now, what we're going to see is primarily, first and foremost, Paul's defense of his ministry. But Paul calls a timeout. We need to address the issues of which I'm being accused. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, I haven't even started to preach the sermon, y'all, so bear with me. We're we're, we're just now getting to the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. You can follow along with me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And now do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? For it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing or participating in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but instead we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? We're going to pin right there and come back to it. I never got the chance to play football, but I enjoy watching it. I could split our church in two right now by asking who your team is that you pull for. Some of you think I'm talking about soccer and others think American football. It doesn't matter. Here's something that's true of both. You've got to have a good offense and you've got to have a good defense. And every coach knows that if your defense is trash, it almost doesn't matter how good your offense is. If you can't stop a nosebleed, you can't score enough points to overcome the challenge that presents. And and Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is taking the posture of understanding if I can't defend my ministry, if there's people poking holes and, and destroying my credibility, then what I'm trying to accomplish is not going to be Allowed. In other words, I'm not going to move the ball down the field if I can't defend the accusations against me. Paul asks 16 rhetorical questions in those 14 verses. You, you heard it, right? It's like one after the other. Can I do this? Do we not have the right to that? Doesn't the law say this? And in those 16 questions, rhetorically, Paul's basically, uh, he's basically alluding to or appealing to four issues. Number one, the evidence of his apostleship. He's going, look, did I not see Jesus myself? Because if I did, that makes me an apostle. He then appeals to uh, the practices of the other apostles. Look, Peter gets away with it. Nobody's beating him up for it. Why are you coming after me? And then he appeals to the law. Doesn't it say in the law this? And then he appeals to nature. Look, it's natural that if somebody is representing their country in war as a soldier, they're not doing that on their own expense. That they're resourced and funded to do that. In the same way, the one that plants the seed should do so because when the harvest comes, they get to participate in it. 
So he appeals to these four issues through 16 rhetorical questions, and we could boil down the essence of Paul's argument to this. Personal holiness is not determined by marital status, food, or drink, or material benefits. Personal holiness is determined by a person's commitment to living and proclaiming the gospel. Those other issues are at best secondary. Paul's saying not, don't examine me. He's saying, examine me by this criteria. Do I live the gospel? Do I proclaim the true gospel? Then, then those other things don't discredit me because my foundation is right. I'll be really honest with you as I was in the first service. As a pastor who regularly talks to other pastors, there's been some difficult times in the last seven to ten years. <laughs> there's been some real challenges. Pastor, why did you stand on that side of the issue? I thought you'd be on this. Pastor, why did I never hear you support the right candidate? You, you could have influenced the votes of hundreds of people and you didn't take that opportunity. Pastor, why did you post what you posted or why did you not post when you should have? Why did you address that issue from the pulpit or why did you stay silent? There were times you could not win for losing. I heard somebody say this week, another pastor, who's about as conservative, orthodox, Bible-believing preacher as you could find, he said, I lost most of my congregation between 2016 and 2020 because I became a woke liberal. <laughs> it was tongue-in-cheek. He's going, listen, we started evaluating pastoral leadership not by the criteria of the gospel, but by where they stood on the issues that we think are important. Man, it's tough. Paul's going, look, look, you're examining me, and by the way, I'm not speaking from personal woundedness. In fact, I want to take this opportunity to commend you as a church for the grace that you've shown me and, and the leadership that you've allowed me to, ex to continue to have in your life as a brother in Christ. I don't take that lightly. There were hard conversations, and there were people along the way that I love dearly who said, Pastor, I can't go that direction. My, my lens is such, I can't get where you are. But can I tell you that even in those conversations, there was a lot of grace, and I can look at those people in the eye, and I see them at Winter Garden Village or Starbucks and go, man, it's so good to see you. Where are you guys worshiping now? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But I know others who that was not their experience. What their experience was, was not being held accountable, but being attacked by their own members that could happen even member to member and listen i don't say that not only from a place of not having those wounds i don't but also from the standpoint of i'm open to and welcome to accountability in fact i would say that i'm not less accountable because i'm your pastor i'm more so so i've got people in my life that go hey pastor you said this did you mean that i don't know we're gonna have that conversation I've also got people that say, Pastor, how are you doing loving your wife and leading your kids? Man, integrity, holiness matters. But when it becomes an inquisition, what happens is we go sideways and the goal of the gospel is forfeited. People die without hearing the good news because we can't figure our stuff out in the church. And so this is Paul's defense of his ministry. And then he moves to verse 15 of chapter 9 and says this. 
but I have made no use of any of these rights. <laughs> Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In fact, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, because necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I do this, uh, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if it is not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of this right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, though I myself am not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul is reframing for the Corinthian believers and for us what really matters when it comes to the lens through which we see things. Paul shifts in these verses from defense to offense. I was a mediocre at best athlete, but I played a little bit of high school basketball uh, for a school that had 13 uh, boys in it, and so I made the team. In fact, my son put me on blast yesterday and told somebody I was bad at basketball. I'm not sure he's ever even seen me play. It's just an assumption. But I can tell you that most of the points that I scored in my high school career were because I was good at defense, not offense. What I mean is, if I could play defense in such a way, and I did, that I could steal the ball and get ahead of the other team, then I've got a free lane to the basket and I can make a layup or a slam dunk if I was able to do that, but I wasn't. So lots of layups and I scored a lot of points that way. And what Paul's doing in basketball terms, we call it a fast break. It's when I'm playing defense, but now I've got the ball and I'm going. And Paul says, look, here's my defense of my ministry, but my defense of my ministry is not where I want to stay. I want to get the ball down the field. I want to accomplish the goal of the gospel. And here he invites the Corinthians in so many words to look through a second lens, the bifocal lens of not only God's holiness, but also his incredible love for people. Now note Paul's incredible wisdom and foresight because he, it's remarkable after making this impassioned defense of his ministry, he goes, oh, by the way, I don't actually need any of those freedoms. <laughs> All those freedoms I'm fighting for and advocating for, I'm not even making use of them. What then is Paul doing? Here's what he's doing. He's establishing grace and Christian liberty as foundational to the gospel, and he's setting up the future missionaries, church planters, pastors, and spiritual leaders to be examined not by the criteria of what the heck they drink with their dinner, but whether or not they live and faithfully proclaim the gospel. Paul is setting the precedent for those of us who would come behind him. That's why he says, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. We might translate that in this way. Paul's only aim is to see reconciliation between a holy God and the people he loves. 
We could say, Paul, what, what then does it look like to make the gospel the main thing or the driving force in your life? And Paul gives us the answer in the verses we just read. He says, when the gospel becomes the main thing, when moving from a place of defense to offense to accomplish the goal becomes the main thing, here's what it looks like, follower of Jesus. It looks like you just might become like a a Jewish person or a person who submits to rituals and laws, not because you're a legalist, but because by doing so, you get a seat at the table and you win them to Jesus. He says it looks like in the next moment shifting and not applying those same laws and principles to myself because now I'm invited to the table of a Gentile, someone who's not looking through the lens of the holiness of God. And by fellowshipping in a meal with them, even if the food's been sacrificed to idols, I'll do it because through that I earn the right to perhaps win them to Jesus. To the weak I become weak, meaning I lay down my privileges and my advantages If they're poor, I identify as much as I can with what it looks like to be poor. If they're wealthy, I identify as much as I can for what it looks like to be wealthy because what matters is the relationship that could win them to the gospel. Paul's saying, I refuse to to make less of other people or to other them. I'm looking for every way to relate to them and connect to them, short of sin. I'm going to find the common ground. Well, they voted for the other guy. That's fine. Do they like college football? Let's watch a game together. They don't ever go to church. That doesn't matter. Do they live down the street from me? Let me interact with them. Because Paul believes the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Therefore, put the gospel in the equation and things begin to change. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul is not carefully counting and measuring his investment. Well, I've I've tried this hard and they didn't come. Paul says, all things, all people, all means. I know I'm not saving all, but I'll go all the way to the wall if only to save some. This is the heart of Paul and this is the heart of the gospel. Paul ties all of this together in the final four verses of the chapter through, by way of illustration, I want to read for you 1 Corinthians 9 and these last four verses. 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might be the one to obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. There's this kind of Easter egg that Paul tucks into the final words of the chapter that I absolutely love. He says, as I'm preaching the gospel, I'm watching my own life because I don't want I don't want to veer from the gospel. I don't want to disqualify myself. In other words, Corinthians, you're examining me, but let me tell you, I examine myself far more than you ever could. Uh, To to those who who would question or examine, I I want you to know, not as a way of repelling accountability, but of being accountable, no one is checking my life and doctrine more closely than I am. Every day I'm going, God, I see this, and I see this in this passage and that passage, and I'm learning this, and I'm growing in that, and I'm praying, God, that I'm staying close to the heart of the gospel. It matters. The holiness of God is not something that matters less. It matters more than any of us could imagine. Paul says, I'm keeping my eye on it. 
But that doesn't mean I can't also keep my eye on the great love of God for people. I'm wearing those bifocals because they both matter. And so the illustration that Paul is going to leave them with and that we will leave with today is the illustration of an athlete training for the Olympics. Uh, Many of you probably do not know that in our 930 service, we have a young man, Alec, who competes in the Special Olympics, and he comes in most weeks wearing medals and ribbons. He's winning everything, man. Running, swimming, bowling, and he's so proud of that, and we're so proud of that for him. He has a goal, and he sets out to achieve the goal of winning those prizes. I also happen to live just a few houses down from a young woman who competed in and won a silver medal in the 4 by 100 Olympic race in Tokyo in 2021. She's an Olympic athlete. She disappears for months on end because she is going to a training facility in some other place where her entire diet and exercise regimen revolve around her goal of winning an Olympic medal. Everything that she does is determined toward this one end. And if I could submit to you that the self-control, the discipline that she applies to her craft is much like what we are called to in our pursuit of holiness. We are called to, we are called to self-control. We are called to holiness. But I would submit to you for your consideration and if you feel so inclined, your feedback, that the pursuit of holiness is not the ultimate goal. In the same way that an Olympian disciplining themselves in what they eat and how they spend their time prepares them to achieve the goal, our pursuit of godliness, of holiness, and of self-control is not an end to itself, but it, it uh, positions us for the goal, which is to win more people to Jesus. Listen, if my life doesn't show the gospel, what, mat- what does it matter what my words are? And Paul's saying, while we look through the lens of holiness, don't miss what the goal actually is. That as we as a body of believers, a fellowship of faith, we link arms with each other. We spur one another on toward the right things. We are also looking with a lens toward reaching people who are far from God. People who are outside of the faith. I want to close with a vision, if you will, of a place in the Bible, a place in the story of redemption where the holiness of God and the love of God for people most ultimately marry. If you were to say, Pastor, where could I go to see that bifocal view, that that twofold lens of the redemptive plan of God? Where, Where do we see the holiness of God and the love of God for people? And I would take you to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull and a Roman cross that sits on the top of a hill. And I would take you to the man Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior of the world, who bled and died on that cross. And what was happening in that moment was this, that the judgment of God on every sin that you or I ever committed or will commit was laid on the shoulders of Jesus such that he would utter these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does holiness matter? The cross would say a resounding yes. God didn't say, you know what? You messed up, but it's okay. I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to look the other way. The Father, the Yahweh God, poured out the judgment of our sin on his son Jesus. Holiness matters. 
But in that same scene and in that same vision, we see Jesus beaten and bloodied and disfigured and stripped naked and stretched out on a Roman cross saying of those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Does the love of God for people matter? The cross would say a resounding yes. And in the cross of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, we see the picture of the gospel. A God who is holy, but who so wholly loves people that he did everything it took to redeem them. There is nothing you can add to your salvation because Jesus said it is finished. I want to invite you to do something that we don't often do, but I feel like it's called for in this moment. Would you close your eyes or bow your head or get in some kind of an undistracted posture in this moment? Because I think there may be someone who's in the room or maybe watching online and you go, Pastor, I, I know God loves people. I've heard that, but I've never really understood what that means for me. And what it means for you is that Jesus was pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities and that the punishment that brought you peace is upon him. And there may be somebody in the room or watching that says, for the first time, I, wanna, I need to recognize that I have fallen short of God's glory. My life has not been a picture, a reflection of the holiness of God, and I need to reach out and receive the saving grace of Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, nobody else is looking around, but I'd love you to stick your hand up so I can see it and pray for you. And you, for the first time, say, I need to receive the mercy of a holy God in the person of Jesus. I see that hand. I see another. Yes. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. I want to encourage you, if your hand's up, that you might find me or one of our other leaders after the service. We'd love to talk and pray with you. And now let me address a second group of you. And that's those of you who have come to know Jesus as your Savior and, and you're doing your best to pursue a holy life and, and self-control and the right things. But you go, Chris, somewhere over the last few months, the last few years, I got sidetracked. I got so consumed with being right and being on the right side and having my way, I forgot how deeply God loves people. And I want to come back to that place of the loving heart of God. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. If you just slip up your hand and say, Chris, I need help seeing through the lens of love. Just where you're at, stick your hand up so I can pray for you. I see several hands going up. And I want to pray for each one of you. Father in heaven, I thank you for the good news of the gospel, something that I didn't create, something I didn't originate, and none of us in this room did. God, you, before the foundation of the world, had a plan to redeem and reconcile people. And God, for those who for the first time lifted their hand up to say, God, I receive the gift of salvation. I receive the death of Jesus on my behalf. Would you do what your word promises, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I thank you for them. And God, for those who have just acknowledged very honestly, my heart's grown a little cold. Maybe there is unforgiveness. I pray that the gospel would shatter that unforgiving heart. Maybe, maybe there's apathy or, or indifference. God, would the love of the gospel, would it just melt away that indifference? And would you replace those hearts of stone with flesh once again? I pray this for me, and I pray this for every person who indicated the same need. And God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. 
Let it be the thing that drives us. Let it be the thing that matters to us. May we see more and more saved and brought into fellowship and relationship with you. And we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.